Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, As we have been saying a lot because we're into it and it's exciting and we want you along with us. We are going to Paris this summer. It's Uh, very exciting. It's so exciting. So in early June of 2019, we are uh, jaunting off to Paris uh, to do a fun trip where we're going to explore a lot of the places that were important during the French Revolution. And you, too, can come along with us. Uh, If you are interested in checking that out, you can go to our website, mistinhistory.com. Look at the menu bar at the top of the page. One of your options to click on says Paris Trip! Exclamation point. Uh, And if you do that, you will be uh, passed through to the website that will handle bookings. You can check it out, see where all we're going to go and the fun things we're going to do. And if that is for you, you can come with us and we will all laugh and laugh and laugh. And like I've said before, I will cry at many things because... I find things like uh, museums and historical places very moving. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) One of my friends has noted that a lot of pictures on the website where the bookings are happening are of food. And yes, we also plan to enjoy a whole lot of French food. Oh, yes. Uh, I'm already, like, scouting out restaurants to take my husband on a date while we're there. So this is the second of a two-parter about Gustave Eiffel. So I suggest you listen to the first one first before this, or this might feel abrupt. And you may not appreciate the journey he went on to become the uh, the iconic builder that he ended up being. And we talked, as I said, in uh, the part one about Gustavo Feld's early years, and that leads straight into today's show in which we are going to talk about some of his most famous works. So just as a quick link up, as you'll recall, if you listen to that first part, when we closed that out, the employee that he had trusted to be his representative in Latin America and South America died, and Eiffel had made the decision to completely pull out of his overseas business. As Eiffel's work ended in South America, there were larger contracts coming in in Europe. First, in 1875, Eiffel was tasked with creating a new terminus building for the Austrian railways station at Pest, Hungary. That's now Budapest. It was a three million franc project, and the new building was constructed around the old one to avoid a service disruption. When the new station was nearing completion, the old one inside of it was demolished, and then the last phase of construction was completed. One of the big stands that Eiffel took in this design was asserting that the structural elements of the building should not be hidden, but should be incorporated into the design. He felt like his plans for the station, quote, carefully brought out the role and the nature of the various materials as clearly as possible. Yeah, he had really championed ironwork as uh, an important structural material. And he thought, like, why are we hiding it? It's making our building stronger. <laughs> we could we could make this part of the design. Uh, and just a few months after the project for the station at Pest was contracted, Eiffel's firm won another large contract, this one in Portugal. And the competition for this bridge project for the Portuguese railway company had been fierce. Several other European companies had submitted proposals, and it would be a boon to whoever secured that contract. The design by Eiffel's partner, Théophile Serig, which featured a large, trussed parabolic arch, was also the lowest bid, and it gained the favor of the railroad. 
With only minor modifications, it was built exactly to plan, which was incredibly demanding because of the river's conditions and the tight budget that they had proposed. Eiffel and his team were able to cut costs, not by cutting corners, but by innovating. Eiffel came up with a way to support the arch segments with cables, building from each side inward instead of having to build a scaffolding in the river, which would have driven up the expense. That bridge, the Maria Pia Bridge, was completed in less than two years, and it still stands, although it's no longer in use. It was made a national monument of Portugal in 1982. Yeah, it's quite lovely. Uh, There are some great pictures of it online if you care to go looking. But though the project went well, there was some unease for Gustave Eiffel. For one, he and Serig had started bickering over whether Eiffel could hire his brother-in-law again. He had hired his brother-in-law on a previous job, and he wanted to do so again, and Seyrig wasn't into it. Uh, And for another, he seemed to really miss his family, and he actually asked his wife, Marguerite, and their youngest child to move to Portugal for the duration of the project. That was something he had never done before. But Marguerite got sick. She had experienced several bouts with pneumonia, and she became very ill while living in Portugal. She traveled back to Paris for treatment, but died in 1877 at the age of 32 before the bridge was finished. Gustave's sister, Marie, and her husband, Dr. Albert Hinoch, who she married a year after her first husband died, helped him raise his children after Marguerite's death. But that wasn't the only tragedy that came his way in the late 1870s. His mother also died in February of 1878. So in the span of just a few months, he lost two of the most important people in his life. After the bridge was completed, Serig wrote a paper about its success and presented it at the French Society of Engineers. While Eiffel had been open about his part in the project, as well as another engineer, once Serig seemed to want to take full credit for the successful bridge for himself, Eiffel became really irritated. He wrote his own paper about the work, downplaying his partner's contribution. By 1879, the relationship between the two of them had completely soured, and their partnership was ended. Yeah, this is a thing that comes up a lot in sort of criticism of Gustave Eiffel. There are some questions about whether or not he was ever really very magnanimous about letting other people have their time in the spotlight uh, on things they had collaborated on. So in this case, it is a little bit like some people will point to this as a moment of like his his pride becoming the problem. But once the dust had settled from this disagreement, Eiffel actually changed the name of his firm to Compagnie des Establissements Eiffel. Seyrig actually attempted to get a portion of the company's assets, which he felt he was entitled to. Remember, he had put in a a greater portion of capital when they first started the company, uh, and he went after what he thought was his fair share in court. And this led to a legal battle that dragged on for 12 long years. Eventually, Seyrig was granted a payment worth four times his initial investment with Eiffel, but that was it. Uh, In terms of how much the company had grown during that time, That seemed a little insulting, and it was considered a loss. In the midst of this strife, Eiffel was also involved in another legal matter, although this one was a lot less contentious. He had been going by Eiffel, but his family name legally was still hyphenated. So in 1880, Gustave legally had the family name changed from Bernicazen Eiffel to simply Eiffel. Yeah, when his great-great-grandfather had moved from Germany to France, he had done the hyphenation on the name. And then they had really gone by Eiffel for most of the time. So he was like, let's just strike that, and this will be our legal name. 
1880, Eiffel began construction on the viaduct of Garibay, and this was a massive structure. It actually had a similar design to the Maria Pia Bridge with a trussed parabolic arch, but this bridge was much larger. And at this point, Gustave Eiffel had become so well-respected that he was really the only engineer that was seriously considered for this challenging project. It was not put out to bids the way most projects would be. They literally were like, the only person who can build this is Gustave Eiffel. It was immediately after this contract was in place that Eiffel formally and legally severed all of his ties with his former partner, Serig. This was also a project that required pre-setting the build site with essentially a mini-town for the workers because the bridge was in a pretty remote and undeveloped area. Because the build was expected to last for a few years, provisions had to be made for the workers to move with their families if they wanted, Everything from living spaces to retail stores that could provide the necessities to schools all had to be built before the construction on the bridge could even start. And as he had done throughout his career, Gustave Eiffel rose to meet these challenges. The viaduct, which included more than 26 tons of iron in its construction and cost roughly 3 million francs, was completed at the end of 1884. Accomplishing such a massive goal made Eiffel famous. He was already well-known in construction, but this really kind of made him famous throughout uh, the country and even in, in throughout Europe. As you recall, this happened in Portugal. And it was sort of part of the reason that he got his nickname, which was Le Magicien du Fer, or the Iron Magician. And sometimes you'll also see this translated as the Iron Wizard. I like that one better, but it's just me. Iron Wizard? Yeah. It's, it's fun. It makes me picture him in a pointy hat with stars on it, kind yeah. of. Uh, 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 <laughs> Fantasia style. <laughs> <laughs> He's making little iron, uh, little iron Tour Eiffel. There you go. Walking in, in a row. Okay, we're about to talk about a famous structure that Gustave Eiffel contributed to that's here in the U.S., but first we will take a quick break to hear about one of the sponsors who is keeping this show going. While Eiffel's firm continued to work steadily, the next high-profile job that he worked on was actually the Statue of Liberty Enlightening the World. That was the original title for that piece, even though we these days just call it the Statue of Liberty. Edouard René Lefebvre de la Boulaye had initiated the idea of a gift to the United States shortly after the Lincoln assassination in 1865. But this project took years to really get momentum uh, and, and get to the point where they could send sculptor Frédéric Auguste Bertoldi to the U.S. to survey the possibilities and come up with a design. This statue is often cited as a gift of the French government to the United States, but it was actually not from the government. It was funded by private donors, the people of France, uh, who all gave their money so that they could share this uh, moment of of sort of brotherhood and support, the only exception being uh, a fairly sizable donation from the city of Paris. Architect Eugène Violet-Leduc initially started work on the engineering of the structure, and with his guidance, the head had been completed in time to be displayed at the 1878 Exposition Universelle. But Violet-Leduc died in the fall of 1879, and it was Gustave Eiffel that was the replacement. Eiffel developed a skeletal support plan for this massive sculpture and designed the stairwells within so that the observation area would be easy to reach. And because the statue was going to be so very exposed when it was installed in New York, 
Eiffel took great care to plan it with an eye towards stability, even in forceful wind gusts. So the copper sheeting that's used on it, uh, each piece is anchored to the interior framework. None of those sheets are simply riveted to an adjacent sheet or sheets, uh, and none of the sheets are load-bearing in any way. As we mentioned in our Emma Lazarus episode, there were some issues with putting together the financial capital on the U.S. side of things to complete the pedestal where Lady Liberty would eventually stand. As a consequence, the team working on the statue in France slowed down their production rate toward the end of the build, while the United States worked to raise the money to finish their construction. But eventually, everything, of course, did come together. And just as he had done with a number of his projects that he had shipped to South America, Eiffel, along with Bertoldi and their teams, took the Statue of Liberty, which they had built in its entirety, apart, breaking it down into 350 component pieces for shipping. And then those pieces were packed into 214 custom crates loaded on a ship which left France on May 21st, 1885. It took a little less than a month to make it to New York. That ship arrived on June 17th. And after months of unpacking and assembly, the statue was finally fully assembled in April 1886. The dedication ceremony for it was held on October 28th of that same year. As Gustave Eiffel had been working on the iconic French gift to the United States, another project was starting to take root. In the early 1880s, plans began for another Paris Exposition Universelle, this time to align with the 100th anniversary of the start of the French Revolution. By the time things really started to get organized for the event, it was already 1886 So the clock was ticking for an 1889 expo to be put together. Yeah, that's a little tight. (laughs) Yeah, it's... it's, People had been working on it up to that point, but they didn't really have all their pieces in place to be like, now we have a full planning committee, let's make this thing happen. And it sounds like ample time for something on a smaller scale, but not something as massive as these expositions were. Yeah. And exactly when the idea of a tower as the centerpiece of this show came into being is a little bit fuzzy. But in May 1886, an announcement was published in the government paper asking for submissions of ideas to build an iron tower for the expo. There were specific needs included in this announcement. It had to be built on the Champ de Mau, and it had to be 300 meters tall with a 125-meter square footprint. And all submissions had to be submitted within 16 days of this announcement. So they only had two weeks and a tiny bit of change to get their designs made, drafted, and submitted. If those requirements seem very, very specific, it's because they were. They perfectly matched a design that Eiffel had ready to go. Two of his engineers, Maurice Coquelin and Emile Nuguet, had already been working on the tower design along with architect Stéphane Sauvestre. Their earliest sketches of it date back to 1884, two years before the Minister of Science and Industry published this call for submissions. It was absolutely no surprise that among the 100 submissions for the tower contract uh, was a design from a Fells firm. There were actually more submissions than that. That was like the narrowed down, these are the serious ones. After a month of analysis of these various proposals, it was determined that only a Fells team had a workable design. And initially, uh, Gustave Eiffel himself had not been especially wowed with the ideas of Coquelin and Nuguier, uh, but he encouraged them to keep going. He was like, yeah, sure, keep working on that. And once uh, Sylvestre got involved, he kind of liked where it was headed. But as he realized what a feat this tower would be if it uh, came to fruition, he actually bought out 
uh, the patent rights from the other three men on the design. And in the terms of their deal, their names would always remain connected to the project because there was going to be some prestige if it got accepted, and they would each get 1% of the estimated cost to build it. So ultimately, in a move that could be interpreted as very astute or very selfish or maybe both, Eiffel signed the contract, not as his company, but on behalf of himself alone. Taking ownership in this way also gave Eiffel rights to income from tower tourism long after the expo was over. He later asserted that he had only wanted to take ownership, quote, to assume company responsibility for the enterprise and to devote to its realization efforts, which I certainly didn't believe at the time would be onerous. And it is true that had the men pursued submitting the designs on their own, they wouldn't have had the same means to build it if it had been accepted without the FL name and the associated resources that came with it. Yeah, this is another one of those times I mentioned in the first episode that he sometimes gets criticized as being kind of selfish, not very good about sharing credit and wanting to kind of be the star of the show <laughs> in regards to some of these projects. Uh, he claims that it was completely magnanimous. He really thought, like, no, let me own it, and that way I will have all of the, the resources to build it, and I will take all the risk, and your names will still be attached, but it's legally and financially all on me. Uh, but other people are like, no, dude, you wanted all the credit. Also in 1886, Gustave's eldest daughter, Claire, got married. She married a man named Adolphe Salle. And this was actually a huge boon to their family because Salle became one of Eiffel's closest friends and collaborators. Uh, so he maintained that close-knit family that he had had from the time he was a child. And one of those little tidbits that you hear a lot of times in, like, uh, fun facts about Paris kinds of articles on the internet, the design style for this tower was not greeted with universal enthusiasm. It was driven entirely by the needs of the structure. There was no attempt to cover up the ironwork with masonry, and the lines of it were determined mathematically to be the angles and positions of supports required to sustain the desired height, which was to be the tallest building in the world. Yeah, there were also people like, what is this tower for? Nothing, just to be Look a at thing. <laughs> and it seemed kind of wasteful and silly to some people to just build a tower for the sake of building a tall thing. Uh, but this idea to promote and showcase the materials of industrial modern design at the time deeply offended a lot of Paris's art community. A group called the Committee of 300, referencing the 300 meters of height for the proposed tower, actually submitted a petition to the Minister of Works condemning the design and insisting that it was going to mar the beauty of Paris if it were built. Eiffel's tower would, they felt, be an affront to the very ideals of France, and they called it useless and a monstrosity. For his part, Gustave defended the tower and asserted that there was plenty of art in good design and that there was no reason the French shouldn't become just as renowned for their engineering prowess as they had for their artistry in other fields. He famously argued that the pyramids at Giza were nothing more than artificial mountains, and yet they became some of the most revered structures on Earth. Yeah, that's another thing that people sometimes point to and go, man, that's some ego to be like, no, what I'm building is like the pyramids, you guys. <laughs> um, but he was right, uh, eventually. So despite the detractors, though, construction did begin in January of 1887. And throughout the next two years of the build, Eiffel and his critics continued to trade barbs. Even after it was completed, 
The complaints continued for a bit. Uh, writer Guy de Maupassant, who had been one of the men who spearheaded the petition committee, allegedly ate lunch in the restaurant at the base of the structure every day because he claimed that was the only place that he could eat where he would not be seeing Afel's eyesore. You just have to see it the whole time you're going there. <laughs> <laughs> well, he claimed that there was he he wasn't safe anywhere in Paris. Like everywhere he went, he just saw this horrible thing he hated. So at least if he was in the horrible thing he hated, he wasn't looking at it. <laughs> we will get to some of the specifics of the Exposition Universal Tower in just a minute, but first we will take a quick sponsor break. <laughs> The effort, manpower, and material needed to build the tower was, of course, startling. Uh, Like I said, this could be a whole episode on its own. We're kind of giving you the the speedy version. But more than 50 engineers and designers had a hand in creating more than 5,000 design sketches that detailed every single aspect of the tower. 150 workers at Eiffel's factory at Levallois-Perret manufactured the needed pieces, which were then carted to the Champ de Mar and assembled by worksite crews that ranged from 150 to 300 men. Building on the lessons that Eiffel learned while working on the Statue of Liberty, he made sure that the tower for the Exposition Universelle could withstand wind. The Tour Eiffel can sway as much as six inches at the top and is designed to handle that movement. Yeah, it also, uh, you'll see a factoid sometimes that it bends slightly in the sun and it can just rebounds back from that. And one of the interesting aspects of how the tower was assembled, at least to me, was its riveting process. There's a a great description of it on the Tour Eiffel official website that describes it. I'm just going to read what they wrote because they'll do it better than if I try to parse it and rewrite it. And that reads, quote, First, the pieces were assembled in the factory using bolts, later to be replaced one by one with thermally assembled rivets, which contracted during cooling, thus ensuring a very tight fit. A team of four men was needed for each rivet assembled, one to heat it up, another to hold it in place, a third to shape the head, and a fourth to beat it with a sledgehammer. Only a third of the 2.5 million rivets used in the construction of the tower were inserted directly on site. When the tower was completed, it was an almost instant popular success. Almost two million people visited the tower, which served as the gateway to the exposition, and for the first time... The exposition Universal made rather than lost money. Yeah, that was always like not a not a profitable enterprise. Like they were basically putting it on to show off all of the many fabulous things that France could do. This was similarly a problem in other places that have had world's fairs. But fundamentally, they're kind of money pits. But this one, so many people showed up just to see the tower that had been so controversial that they ended up making money. Uh, and as the public and indeed the world marveled at what Gustave Fell had pulled off, criticism from the art community kind of died down. Uh, but Eiffel found himself, unfortunately, in a whole other sort of trouble right on the heels of his 1889 exposition success. In 1887, while working at his now-famous tower, Eiffel had agreed to build one of the locks in the Panama Canal. This put him in business with Ferdinand de Lesseps, who we mentioned on the first part of this two-parter, And by the way, for Bravo fans in the crowd, yes, that's the same family. Yes. Those of you that didn't get that, ignore it. It's not important. But there is a Deliceps involved in one of the Bravo shows, yes, related to Ferdinand. I'm going to say I said that, and I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) 
so to set the stage on why this was a problem, we actually have to go back a little bit to 1879 when Deliceps became president of the Compagnie Universelle du Canal Interoceanique. In 1880, shares of that company were offered to the public as a way to drum up funding to build this canal. And Deliceps was hoping to once again find the success that he had achieved with the Suez Canal with this venture, which would excavate a ship canal along the narrow isthmus of Panama. But the whole enterprise was a huge and tragic failure. Deliceps had not managed things well. He had really not studied historical exploration of the area, which revealed it to be exceedingly unwelcoming. He also had only made personal visits to the area during the dry season and had no sense of the dangers of the rainy season. 20,000 men died while working on the canal due primarily to malaria and yellow fever. Even as men were dying in large numbers in Panama, Deliceps was recruiting new workers in France. Yeah, so there was just some, one, ignorance, kind of willful ignorance in the mix, and two, just some kind of gross behavior of like, oh, Lots of people are dying. I better go get more guys and not really tell them how dangerous this whole thing is. And in addition to that very tragic human cost, there was also a very real financial loss in the venture as well. Approximately $250 million, that's about a half billion francs at the time, were sunk into this ultimately failed project. And when it ran out of money, all of those investors who had contributed to the project were left with no way to get their money back. So there were some people who believed in this, spent their life savings to try to be part of it, and then were left destitute. The whole enterprise became a huge scandal, and Gustave Eiffel was in the middle of it. He had initially been against the project, which De Lesseps had conceived without locks. It wasn't until the addition of a lock system that Eiffel had gotten involved. And just like Ferdinand Deliceps and his son Charles, Gustave Fell was charged with fraud for his involvement in the mismanaged canal project, even though he had not been part of that business administration side. In 1893, he was actually sentenced to two years in prison, and he was also fined, but that verdict was overturned by a higher court. But even though at that point he had cleared his record... He just felt as though his name as a builder was tainted forever due to the extensive coverage that this whole scandal had gotten in the press for years at that point. Eiffel withdrew from his firm, and it was renamed La Société de Construction Le Valois Paré. At that point, Maurice Coquelin, one of the engineers who had originally conceived of the tower that made Eiffel famous, took over as managing director of the company. But Gustave Eiffel did not retire to an idle life. He merely switched gears and began a second career in science. He started conducting his own research with the intention that he was going to share any of his findings freely. And in 1894, he started conducting experiments at his famed tower. As part of the construction agreement that Eiffel had signed to build the tower, he paid for a significant amount of its costs, and in return, he was entitled to money made from the visitors for 20 years. After that, the city government would take full possession of the structure, and the intent was that it would be taken down at that point. But by the late 1890s, the engineer-turned-research scientist had added an antenna to the tower and was running wireless telegraph experiments there. And as a consequence of this work, which was seen for its value immediately, particularly for military applications, the city extended the concession to Eiffel to continue his work. So he basically retained that same agreement on the tower uh, for a much longer period of time. And the tower, of course, was never disassembled as had originally been planned since we are talking about it because we are going to go see it in a couple months. 
In addition to the telegraph and radio transmissions, Eiffel began investigating aerodynamics, which he had become fascinated by while working on the Statue of Liberty. He built a wind tunnel at the tower in 1909 and an aerodynamics laboratory in 1912 in another part of the city where he could do even larger wind tunnel experiments. And in his lab at Otoy, Eiffel used model aircraft in his larger wind tunnel to study the optimal designs of things like propeller thrust and speed and angle of inclination and air resistance. And his work there also contributed to missile design and how bombs were released. His work directly impacted the aircraft that France used in the First World War and established new levels of knowledge in aircraft science. Uh, I have actually seen some people comment that he really should be just as well known for his work in aircraft engineering as he is for having built this iconic tower, but uh, that doesn't get talked about very often. But for all this work, in 1913, the Smithsonian Institution awarded him the Langley Gold Medal. Just as he had been in engineering bridges and other structures, Eiffel was meticulous in his calculations and measurements in aerodynamics, which Alexander Graham Bell said, quote, have given engineers the data for designing and constructing flying machines upon sound scientific principles. Eiffel designed a fighter plane in 1917, and his designs, which he distributed without any remuneration, were used to build two prototypes by the company that would eventually evolve into Air France. Those designs were eventually abandoned, though. In 1920, Gustave Eiffel actually retired. <laughs> uh, he was in his 80s at that point, and he spent much of his time in the mansion that he had built for his entire family on the Rue Rabelais. And he wrote his memoirs during this time, but he did not have any intention to publish them. He just wanted the family to have a record of his life and work. And he had this very unique experience. We often talk about people not getting to know how important their work was while they were alive, but he had a sense while he was still alive of the impact that his work had had on the world. Eiffel died on December 27, 1923, at his home in his mansion. He was 91. 26 years later, his bust was installed at the base of his iconic tower. And uh, the Tour Eiffel remained the tallest building in the world until 1930, and that was when the Chrysler Building in New York City was constructed. There have, of course, been other jockeying for positions of who is tallest. At one point, there was an addition to the top of uh, Eiffel's Tower, which made it tallest again for a second. And But now it's, of course far behind many other impressive and slightly frightening things around the world. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I really was a little taken aback. I didn't realize just how many kind of important structures he had built throughout Europe that have gone, you know, unless you're into engineering history or particularly his biography, people may not realize that a lot of the infrastructure of Europe is particularly, you know, post-industrial age, he was involved in in some way. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Cool. And I I kind of love him, even though he maybe had some problems sharing credit. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but he clearly was also a genius. Yeah. And I appreciate that he was very, very, very obsessed with um, making sure that all the numbers were correct. Like, I, I feel like at a time when people were just playing guessing games trying to put things together and see if they worked. He was like, no, let's actually map all this out on paper and make sure the math is right. And he probably saved a lot of time in terms of, like, the development of architecture and engineering. Yeah. Like, for the world, mm -hmm. not just for him. Um, anyway, clearly, I think he's cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you have some cool listener mail? 
I do. Uh, this is from our listener, Kaylee, uh, who is writing us from Devon. I like that because I have a Devon Rex cat. That's maybe super nerdy and not germane at all, but there it is. Uh, she is actually writing about sort of our Skellig Michael podcast. She said, I loved your podcast about Skellig Michael, so I thought I'd send you a card from my favorite natural landmark in my area, Brent Tor. The pictured tour is not part of the moorland, but is the remnant of a volcano back when much of England was under a shallow sea. It's incredibly steep and offers stunning views all around. It's also incredibly blustery, sometimes so windy it is hard to talk. Perfect spot for a church. There are many stories about the struggle to build St. Michael's Church, which has a capacity of 20, some involving the devil and making the church sometimes be referred to as the devil's church. Brides used to have to be carried up the steep hill to their ceremony, but it is a beautiful church in a bizarre natural landmark, and I wanted to share it with you briefly. Thank you so much for the show, and hello from Devin. Uh, Kaylee, that's a very cool story about a thing I did not really know about at all, so now I want to look that up and maybe will. We'll see what happens. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History and at the website, MissedInHistory.com. If you'd like to subscribe to the podcast, that sounds like a grand idea to me. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app at Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Uh, again, if you're interested and want to get information on our trip to Paris in June, you can do that at our website, MissedInHistory.com. Click on the link in the menu bar that says Paris Trip, and you'll get all the info. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 